you're listening to Death of the Reader, Flex here with you, and as I upload this episode today, it is the debut, the publication day of Jamie West, a West Ender turned murder mystery writer with his novel Death on the Pier, which we are having a full-length spoiler-ridden discussion of today. I will let you know at which point in the episode the spoilers begin, so you can still safely resume this episode. But nonetheless, this is all a part of our Radiothon celebrations. A massive congratulations to Jamie for the publication of this novel. And uh, wanted to say a happy birthday to 2SER as well. This October is our 42nd, 43rd birthday. Uh, and Radiothon each year at that time means that it is the period of the year where we ask for your support. So if you're interested in helping independent media thrive, especially our local community station 2SER 107.3 here in Sydney, head up to the website 2SER.com. I'll have links. But I'm going to throw you over to that discussion that we had with Jamie over his wonderful debut, Death on the Pier. Jamie, Welcome to Death of the Reader. It's so good to have you. I'm so excited to be here, yeah. So you started writing this book during a lockdown amidst the production of Dear Evan Hansen, and I'm curious out the gate if you feel like Evan Hansen had a particular impact on the way you approached the book, and if you could tell us a little bit about how it came about in that way. Well, it's kind of it's kind of weird because the theatre idea came into it quite late on, actually. This is an idea, I've been meaning to write a murder mystery book for, I don't know, five or six years. And the peer part of it came way earlier. I was like, oh, that's a really great idea. You know, there's that kind of closed circle mystery. So there's only one way on or off a peer. So if that's blocked, you know, that kind of creates a great closed circle mystery. I've already read five or six books this year that are set on isolated islands or luxury retreats. So it's kind of, I was looking for something (laughs) a little bit different, a little bit different. But while I was looking into peers and another one of my hobbies, which is looking into lost theatres, I discovered there was this lost pier, this lost theatre, sorry, on the end of the Palace Pier in Brighton, which is no longer there. And that suddenly everything kind of dropped into place after that. So I was like, oh, well, I like the theatre. I like murder mysteries. Let's write a murder mystery set in a theatre. And then the idea of having a playwright involved and maybe his best friend um, happens to be um, a police detective. So that's where that, that's how it kind of came on. So yeah, so only during lockdown is it like, oh, let's make this, let's make this set in a theatre. So yeah, it came quite late on in the process, bizarrely. Yeah, it's so interesting because like, as you, as you say, the identity of the theatre is like so intrinsic to this. Uh, and you've worked through a vast array of shows on London's West End, which gives you like so much history and background to all of the theatres there. Why does the identity of a theatre matter when at face value so many people are just there for what's on the stage and little else? It's yeah, it's weird because you can't, I find you can't work in the theatre or I can't work in theatres without being fascinated by the history of them. It's like we're always passing through. It's like, especially in the in the, the olden days, your play had only be on for maybe 12 weeks at the most. We kind of hang around for a bit longer these days. We kind of hang around for one or two years. But you're really passing through these places that are full of history of productions. You know, the buildings are really old. They're over 100 years old. So I think, yeah, back in the day, theatres had their own identity, whereas nowadays shows just go into them and kind of they kind of fit a bit better but back in the days of kind of actor managers that were running theatres in the West End they had a certain type of play you go to a certain type of theatre to see a certain type of play and they would have you know personalities in that way so yeah it's very 
it's very kind of cool, I think. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that, like, theatrical necromancy of bringing back the Brighton Palace Pier Theatre, which closed in 1973? Yes, I think so, somewhere around there. What What was the particular draw of resurrecting this over many of the other lost ones of the world? You mentioned that you came across the story. Was there kind of a genesis of the idea beyond that? Were there other theatres in contention? Um, no, this, like I said, it kind of... The pier came first and the theatre came later, but it, yeah, it kind of combined my two hobbies of like murder mystery and these lost theatres. Um, and the Brighton Palace Pier, I only found out a lot of the information once I started writing the book. So I was like, this is a great location. But then I started finding out more about it and it had this incredible glass ceiling, which I don't think... I don't know any theatres that have a glass ceiling complete. You know, they might have a dome or something, but the entire ceiling of this place of glass, which seems insane for a theatre in the middle of the sea, um, doesn't feel very safe to me, but all right. <laughs> but yeah, there are loads more theatres that are lost in the UK and I'm looking into all of them and I want to resurrect a lot more of them as well. So, I mean, I think we'll see how far we can push it with you know every time Bertie's involved there's a murder in one of his plays no one stages plays anymore so I think I might have to think some uh, <laughs> think some new ways around that but um yeah there's so many more I want to do and the next book I'm actually looking into the Gaiety Theatre which was a theatre on the Strand and that's that's lost now as well but yeah there's so many theatres around the place and some of them are still at risk today there's the Theatres Trust which is a charity in the UK that kind of looks into protecting these theatres that are at risk and kind of keeping them around. Um, but there's loads of theatres all over the place. Some of them they've turned into churches or synagogues or mosques. Some of them are pubs or nightclubs. Um, a lot of them are bingo halls. So you can just wander around the UK or wander around London and see all these clues to what might be a theatre. The supermarket, when I worked on Book of Mormon, the Tesco's we used to go to to buy our food. I walked out of it one day and I was like, that's a very ornate exit door. It had like exit carved into the stonework above the exit door. I was like, that's weird. That looks a bit like a theatre. So sure enough, you go and do a bit of research. It's like, yeah, that used to be a theatre. Now it's a supermarket. It's They're kind of everywhere, especially in the UK, because theatres were, you know, and they still are. There's, you know, thousands of theatres in the UK that are still running. So it's a very popular kind of pastime in the UK, I guess. I was just having a think as you said that, like, yeah, the top two buildings I think of as being repurposed is theatres and, like, railway halls. They're, they're everywhere. Yeah. Absolutely everywhere, filled with all sorts of strange oddities in the modern day. It's so interesting to me that this novel is set in 1933 when the Palace Pier had another 40 years of life in it because the theatre you portray isn't, like moving and alive in the same way that a lot of other theatres are in Murder Mystery. We're almost looking at like the scars on a body in the burns, the stains, the cut corner, the like metal sheet over the glass roof that makes it sound as if the rain is inside your ears <laughs> when it's raining. It's so curious to me that this like dilapidation is character. How do you think that plays out in the theatres that you've worked in? And why was that kind of the angle of portraying the palace pier? Well, if you go into... I remember, you know, I just come fresh out of drama school and I was like, oh, I can't wait to get into a Western theatre. And you walk through stage door that you've looked at your whole life. and You're like, oh, my gosh, I bet it's amazing in there. And you go in and it smells a bit damp and sometimes there's mice around. They are sort of, you know, they're not as bad as they used to be. But <laughs> certainly some of the touring That's venues. That's a horrifying thought. Yeah, certainly some of the touring <laughs> venues around the UK are still, a, you know, not the nicest of places to be. They are because they're just so old. But if in the kind of 30s, 
the golden age, the first golden age of theatre was kind of over. Um, it was kind of, I can't exactly remember where it ran from, but it was kind of like 1850 to sort of like 19, just before the First World War. So theatre was still really popular, um, but it was kind of in a decline um, because of the radio. And then, of course, the TV came in. And then in the 60s and 70s, you had blockbuster movies. So a lot of theatres, you know, ended up being cinemas for a while. And right up until, you know, it was only the mega musicals of the 1980s that had this big resurgence of people coming back to the theatre. And we're sort of between 1985 and now, I kind of call it the second golden age of theatre because as long as I've been working in the industry, audiences have been growing and growing and growing, uh, which is great up until, you know, of course, bloody COVID. Um, <laughs> so, um, but yeah, it's kind of interesting to me, this sort of from the 30s and especially from the 40s and 50s onwards as the music halls were slowly kind of fading away. There is kind of this long, slow decline and we're sort of just at the beginning of that. So you kind of think of theatres as always being really glamorous gorgeous places but yeah after that first golden age kind of slowly came to an end um it wasn't you know it wasn't the kind of magical place we often see um portrayed on tv um and they, these murder mysteries of the era or these period shows it wasn't necessarily all glamour which is kind of yeah a kind of fun thing to explore i think yeah, I guess the other thing that particularly stood out to me is that the first like theater set murder mystery we covered on the show was Opening Night or Night at the Vulcan by Nio Marsh. And in that book, as I mentioned, it's like a lot more anthropomorphic in the way that it portrays the theater, the way that like the corridors are almost yawning with the air coming from vents. And as you say, like mice are scurrying down the hallway. But the Palace Pier Theater feels so much quieter in that way. Um, but for a small thing that I will, I will hold for spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I was really curious how you feel about the idea of like your creation of the palace theater as a character. Is, is that the way that you see it or is it the setting that's more important? I think the, the setting overall is a bit, uh, a bit more of the character to me because it's kind of set in the off season. So it's not the height of the summer and I'm, kind of fascinating when I go to seaside towns outside you know it's winter it's a bit more blustery they're not you know they're not they look a bit more tired at the end of the season as well there's something kind of fascinating to me about that I love kind of I love going to places that have got faded grandeur so it's like once these glorious places you know palaces or mansions and they're all a bit rough around the edges and you can see just underneath that surface level of like dust and decay you can see how wonderful these places must have been and i think yeah that's kind of true for yeah brighton and any kind of seaside town in the off season but also all of these theaters like when they were first built they were gorgeous and opulent and lovely and you know they've been loved but not necessarily as much as they could be it's only you know very very recently in the uk and the west end that you know these theaters have had enough money to kind of reinvest in them and make them really comfortable again. Um, so yeah, I, but I love a bit of faded grandeur. I think that's um, really interesting. And it's like you say, it's very characterful. I think you can see the history on the walls that it's not stayed this shiny thing. It's a used, you know, 2000 people have been coming in and out of this place every night for the past, however many years. So they're well used 
places. Yeah, I guess the next thing that I wanted to talk about, which I somehow have managed to fail mentioning this entire time, is the characters in this novel, who are wonderful, by the way. Oh, thank you. I really enjoyed the way that Hugh and Bertie's relationship played with like both this modern reinterpretation of classic detectives in maybe they were queer, but also grappled with this like lifelong professional platonicism to their dynamic. I thought that was like really cool compared to like the way that we so often see Sherlock and Watson spun these days. <laughs> How did those characters come to be for you? They sort of just, I know it's a very authory thing to say, but they sort of just landed in my lap. <laughs> like I said, as soon as the theatre aspect of it came and I was like, oh, it'd be nice to have, you know, a player, someone who's actually involved in um, the theatre a bit more intimately, knows how it works a bit and is kind of there. Like sometimes as a bit as an interpreter, you know, we've got our own language, we've got our own attitudes, we've got our own customs. And it's like, he's kind of there as a bit of a conduit. But I was also keen to kind of avoid that kind of PC plod kind of thing where it's the amateur detective that's super clever and the policeman that's really stupid. <laughs> I sort of wanted them both to be kind of investigating as equals as opposed to anyone trying to get one over the other. But yeah, they kind of just landed in my lap. And also the fact that this is the first time they've met up since school. I was like, how, you know, how have people changed over that time? You know, those things the experience you had when you were young um, with someone and those intense friendships. Because a very good friend, you know, I've got some friends that I only see every five, sometimes 10 years, um, and you bump into them and you just sort of pick up where you left off. Um, and I was really intrigued to see how that would work, how they remembered the past, whether that was the same for both of them or different. I mean, I don't really know where it's going, to be honest. I've not, I've not got a golden, like an overarching plan for these two, where it's going. I've not done a JK Rowling and done right in 10 books time. <laughs> this is the ending. They're going to have a happy ending. That's what it's going to be. I'm sort of excited to live through um, a few more cases with them and see how that relationship um, changes and how it gets affected. Yeah. The other thing you're kind of looking for as an author is an excuse to get your characters together. You know, the amount of times Miss Marple or Poirot are kind of shoehorned into a situation where you're like, oh, would they really? <laughs> oh, it's just, oh, they just happened to be walking past and there was another murder. Oh, I know. I mean, the novel we're talking about this week alongside this interview is Dorothy L. Sayers' Whose Body? And Lord Peter Whimsey straight up gets a phone call from his mother saying, one of my friend's friends has a body in their bath. And it's like, really, Dorothy, that was the best you could do. <laughs> but it's, it's such a tough thing, isn't it? But I think yeah. um, in this, I've kind of flipped it in this one. I think in the future, we're kind of going to see the excuse for them to get together is murder which i don't you know that's not going to be a very you know that's not a very stable yeah base to build any kind of relationship on um but it's like yeah, i think it's kind of fun that it's like oh the excuse to see each other is oh i've got another a murder so bertie come come and hang out with me for a bit that's a that's a good excuse rather than yeah i feel like they need like i feel like they need an excuse to get together as opposed to just being oh pop over so, um, yeah, I think that's it's kind of fun to play with. I think the other thing that works so incredibly well about them is that, like, Bertie is, as you say, in many ways just as competent as Hugh, even though Hugh is the detective. But Hugh is incompetent as entertainment for the audience in a really great way. So there is still that kind of, like, really competent and really incompetent character dynamic. But <laughs> where one is weak, the other is strong in the, the classic buddy cop situation. And it works so well because Birdie is almost playing to the audience in the same way that we see Teddy on stage so often, like, throwing glances out there. <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah, you've got to. And again, it, this all kind of, you know, I've not really 
it's not something I planned out. I was like, how do I make these two work together? They kind of just arrived and I just let them play off each other. And, you know, there were more, you know, the first theme where they met, there was a lot of stuff that got cut in the edit because it went on for ages. So it's just like, they were talking about all <laughs> kinds of things, but that was my way of, you know, because I don't set out a huge backstory before I write these characters. I kind of explore them through the writing. It was like, that was my chance to explore these characters, find out what their past was by how they kind of talk to each other. And then, yeah, a lot of that got cut because it wasn't very interesting. Um. <laughs> I mean, also the really fun thing about Birdie in this situation is that as a queer man in the 1930s, he's in a theater and he's like, oh goodness, I'm so out of place. A gay man in a theater. <laughs> what a strange and unusual dynamic. <laughs> I know. It's, yeah, it is. But I mean, there was... I did make, there was one more gay character in there for a while, but I was like, oh, this, this book's getting a bit too gay now. I need to, uh, <laughs> but cause obviously it's like, you sort of have to write what you know. And it's like, mm. I'm not necessarily, you know, comfortable, right. As my main, you know, protagonist, I'm not necessarily comfortable about writing about a straight relationship because I don't really have, I have zero experience with that. So I can't really write about that with, you know, any kind of informed way. So, um, yeah, so there was obviously going to be some sort of gay centerpiece going on through these books. Um, but yeah, I needed to uh, take a little bit of gay out of it. It was getting a bit too gay, I think. <laughs> yeah, I, I suppose the other thing, and also as a bit of a teaser for a spoiler discussion we're going to have down the line, is I thought you did such a unusually good job having a tiny cast of characters involved in this crime. Because so often when I open a book with a tiny cast of characters, it's like, well... It's obviously this person. Like, there's only so many people it could be, of, and four of them are the detective's mother. Like, <laughs> how's that? How's that going to work out in the end? But you did such a, a an excellent job, like crafting this overlapping myriad of circumstances in in the classic way of murder mystery. Doing that for the first time, how intimidating was it going in, and how well do you feel you did on the way out? Um, gosh. What a good question. Um, like I said, I don't, I didn't really plan out too much. I mean, I knew who did it at the start um, and I knew how they did it. I sort of knew why that kind of got a bit clarified as I was writing it. But yeah, I'm very bad. I have a very bad short-term memory. So if I'm reading a murder mystery book <laughs> with lots of characters, I can't, like my husband loves keeping track of things. He's like, oh, I think they did it. He, but like, he's, he won't have a notebook out, but not far off. He like really keeps track of everything. But I forget what I've read in the last chapter almost instantly. So I'm much more immersed perhaps in the mystery and just like, I just go with it. But yeah, I, um, I didn't want to have a crazy, crazy cast of characters just cause it's a lot, you know, it's a lot of characters to invent and actually it allows me in the chapters, we get to spend a decent amount of time just sort of knowing a bit about these people. And luckily, you know, working in the theater for all these years, no, no one person's based on any person, of course, but there's so many stories I've heard over the years, snippets of, you know, great dialogue. Actors say ridiculous things sometimes without realizing it. <laughs> um, great little snippets of dialogue. And you hear it all behind the scenes. Oh yeah, exactly. Exactly. So yeah, it was really nice to kind of incorporate all of those things into you know they're not quite tropey characters but that kind of old older actor that's seen it all is a bit kind of jaded about the industry has always played you know um the secondary roles all his life um you get the lead the overbearing kind of lead actress they're sort of kind of tropey characters in a way but i hope that i've been able to bring them to life in 
you know, they don't feel like cardboard cutouts. Hopefully they feel like rounded characters. That was always my aim with them, basically. Yeah. And I, I mean, and I think it fits so well into the murder mystery tradition because like, you know, Nia Marsh and Agatha Christie were such enormous contributors to the theater scene in their day that it feels at home having the theater archetypes in a murder mystery book. Yeah, it's like, and I think you get a bit of it, you know, with theatrical types, they're not quite, they're just on a slightly elevated kind of world that's a little bit different to everyone else. I think that's why, you know, Agatha Christie loves having actors in her books um, because they get to do a bit more work. They get to go that extra mile and go, oh, that doesn't, that's not something a normal person would do, but you kind of get away with a bit more of perhaps an outlandish scheme because they've got that kind of alternative creative thinking thing going on so yeah i think you get a bit more having theatrical people allows you to be a bit more theatrical in the you know in the writing of it basically Mm, mm, i think so now i have one big question that i'm so curious about having gone all the way to the end of this novel and of course huge spoiler warning in case you didn't catch the end here talk to me about the superstition of real flowers in a theater environment i've been around theaters a bunch and i've never heard of this before oh really it's um Maybe it's just an English thing. Maybe it's just a British thing. But yeah, there's um, it's supposedly bad luck um, to have real flowers on the stage. You always have false ones. I don't know. I mean, there must be, like all these things, there must be some sort of story about it, but I'm not entirely. Yeah. I don't know what I, it I should is. Be clear, I've heard the like, I've heard the like, make sure you don't have real flowers on stage as they like, because they would wilt and it's easier to have them for the production thing, but never as like a superstition. Oh yeah, thing. no, I think it's, you know, it's a, yeah, it's a bit of bad luck, I think. Because I guess, you know, if you've got wilting flowers on the stage, it doesn't necessarily, you know, <laughs> conjure confidence in your, uh, encourage confidence in the show, perhaps. But yeah, that's always been, yeah, it's a bit of a, yeah, it's definitely a thing over here, I think. It's so curious because I felt that like as a clue on a reread, you put it so in front of the audience in a beautifully subtle way, but also was like a little bit inside jokey where obviously the theater people have a better chance of getting it. (laughs) And that was something that was like so useful having Birdie as a character there is that like he is the conduit in the same way that he is for Hugh to anyone in the audience who isn't a theater buff. Yeah, he can sort of update you on all those little things that are going on. I mean, I think that, you know, the flowers and the vase thing is... I mean, there's loads of Agatha Christie influences in here, some of which I'm aware of, some of which I'm compl- have just snuck their way in there. And people are like, oh, that's quite <laughs> Agatha Christie. But that definitely is from, I can't remember what the short story is. I think it's the um, Affair of the Mysterious Pearls or something like that. But yeah, that's set in a theatre and they discover the pearls in the bottom of a vase. And I was just like, yeah, that's a great, that's a great hiding place. So I think I'll, I think I'll borrow that. So yeah, if you're familiar with um, the David Suchet series, you may have seen that seen that uh, happen in there (laughs) i mean it's so good as well because it's one of a number of clues that really as yeah i said in our the earlier part of our discussion there was one thing about the theater that made it feel alive that i didn't want to mention for spoilers and it's that the theater feels like it hands all of the clues over to birdie it's like yes the burn marks you noticed on the floor those hid the bullet hole the things that you noticed like tiring the walls that was from this and there's just this like wave of things where the theater almost contributes to the answer of the crime i don't know i I don't really have a question here so much as that i was just so fascinated in the way that like you almost invented a third detective character in the walls of the building well that the thing is it's like that's what theaters do feel like sometimes i mean I often start work, there's not many people around the theatre. You stand on the stage and like, this is my, this is obviously my over-romantic 
idea of the theatre, but you stand on the stage in an empty auditorium and it still feels like it's full of people. It doesn't feel empty. That's what the feeling is inside theatres. And I was like, I'd somehow need to recreate that feeling because it's, yeah, I don't believe in ghosts. I think even Bertie says this at some point. It's like, I don't believe in ghosts, but working in theatre is one of the closest things that could almost convince you. Although that said, I did have a, one of my radios at work mysteriously jumped out of its charger, which it's clipped into um, during the show, just suddenly flew down the fly floor at me. I was like, wow, that's weird. So I don't know, maybe ghosts do exist. Maybe. But, um, but yeah, the whole, I mean, the big crux of it is almost, oh, why are they doing this? Why are they doing this play in the first place? That's the thing that's kind of hanging yeah. over the whole thing. It's like, it's off season. You've mm. got this huge Hollywood star in it. It's like, why are they doing it? Why are they doing it for so cheap? And it kind of all, like, I feel like that's hanging over the whole thing as, you know, a big, you know, it's not a big question. It's not a big twist or a big reveal, but it kind of adds a bit of pressure the whole time. And just like, you're always thinking, why, why, why? Yeah. yeah. It doesn't quite make sense that we're even here in the first place. Yes. Right. Yeah. I mean, I do love that sense as well. Uh, and I've been reading a lot of stories that have done this recently of like the fate is what you make of it situation, where in the same way that the fate of putting this play together, putting the whole plan together, planning the murder, coordinating with his estranged daughter, you know, Arthur makes this whole thing for himself, but because he chose Bertie, he has made the fate for yes. himself of getting caught. I'd love, I mean, one of my favorite, I love a time shift murder and this one doesn't quite function like that, mm. but I love the idea that you've got a plan and like, because <laughs> the murder's committed later, but you've said mm. it's happened. So you have to, you have to go through with it. There's something fascinating about that. The plan's already going. You're on a roller coaster. Mm. At some point, you know you're going to have to kill someone for the plan to work and you can't back out. And I just, yeah, I find, I love a time shift murder. And this, like, it's, this is time shifty in a way. Um, but yeah, not exactly the same kind of way as those Agatha Christie. Yeah, because I'm not, I'm not a huge Golden Age reader necessarily, but Agatha Christie is my go-to of that era i'm just like i can just go back to them again and again and again and like i say because i've got a terrible memory the twist endings still work for me most of the time so um but yeah i just find it so she has such a good way of making everything not make sense until that last puzzle piece goes in and then you're like oh of course it had to be that way and that's it's all like i can't compare myself to agatha christie but i hope that the way i construct things does all make sense at the end. You know, there's a lot of murder mystery, especially on the TV that I love watching, um, where it's just like, okay, well, we'll set up all our characters and then for the final chapter, oh, I better get around to picking someone um, and then it just becomes them. But I hope the way I've written this, it becomes inevitable and you're like, oh, it only could have been this person. We couldn't have just picked any of them in the final chapter. Yeah. It had to be that. And that's my goal. And she does that so masterfully she has a way it's almost like you know the tablecloth trick where she whips the mm. you know she rip, whips the rug out from under your feet but somehow you're still left standing it doesn't make you go oh well i never could have got that it's well yeah all there and i just like yeah, i love that i i think i think the best example in your book is that when you get to the end it becomes very obvious to you that the only person who wasn't framed was arthur 
And like, that's kind of the beauty of it is that he was just as suspicious all along, but because he was the only one that wasn't made suspicious, that's kind of how you pick him out from the crowd in a way. Yeah, yeah, and those true. sorts of constructive d- devices are like very Christy, very golden age. Yeah, it's always like whenever someone, whenever it's being made to look like someone did the murder, they definitely didn't do it. <laughs> that's mm. always the way it works out. But yeah, there was something... It's almost like I kind of wanted to do a locked room mystery and it's not quite a locked room mystery, but it's a locked room with 200 audience members locked in with them. Yeah. And it's like, you can still, it's like, I just love those things where it's like, did I see what I actually thought I saw? This was, this was one of my favorite things about the book is that of course you create this locked room by having everyone on stage at the same time which is both a dramatic device for the audience to say like, here is the surprise detail where nobody could have done it, but at the same time is of course the biggest clue, you know, the most locked door is the one that must be opened kind of thing. Yeah, definitely. It's, um, there's just something kind of harrowing about, uh, like guns on stage and you kind of get to, when you do those bits, um, in a show you're doing technical rehearsals or whatever you've got guns and knives and simulated hangings I've done on shows and it gets to those points in the rehearsal and everything just gets a bit more serious because mm. ha- you've got I these mean, great as it actors. should to some extent well, no, exactly <laughs> but you've got these great actors um, and they're acting like they've been stabbed or they've been shot or they're you know they're hanging and how do you know if it's real or not and I found then mm. that was the real driver behind this because I find that completely fascinating and there has been you know odd occasions i think you know most recently alec baldwin in that rust film where things do go wrong and it's like that's a bit that was a bit different but it's like yeah things do go wrong and just how do you know there's so much trust going on in a theater to make sure that things happen safely and correctly um obviously with lots of safeguards in place um Mm. but yeah i just find that quite macabre and terrible it's like that someone can be someone could be shot or stabbed on stage and no one would have any idea um, until the end. It's, it's also so interesting that you mentioned trust there because as we were talking about earlier, Hugh and Birdie haven't seen each other for 20 years. It's kind of a pickup where you left off friendship, as you were saying, but Hugh still has to build that trust with Birdie where he can you know, have him along for the case. And the most interesting part of that to me is, of course, that he trusts him enough to do the final unveiling, which is normally the detective's honor. And it's so good that he just gets to run with that scene. And as Teddy says, it's like, oh, this is the best show we've I've ever been a part of. <laughs> well, it's I think, you know, because he's again, it's like you often get those big theatrical denouements in books and Poirot is like everyone pay attention to me for a little bit I'm going to do a bit of a show and it's like you know it's nice to give that to someone who is you know a playwright and knows how to construct these sort of things and I think yeah perhaps yeah he kind of he kind of runs with it a bit, which is kind of fun <laughs> I suppose there Jamie is there anything else here at the tail end of like having put this book together it's nearly out in the world as we speak today you know, what, what's the one thing that you hope someone walks away noticing from the way that you've put this all together? Or is there something even that you've been told about after finishing the book that you weren't aware of until someone mentioned it to you? Um, I just want people to go away 
um, like I said earlier, I just love books with a satisfying ending. And that doesn't necessarily mean there's a huge twist. You're like, oh, I never could have got that. There's something almost a bit more satisfying by like, oh yeah, I worked out most of it, but I didn't get that last bit. And I always loved that feeling at the end of like a good murder mystery book where you can go away and you're like, yeah, I almost got there. And it's like, I may have worked out who did it, but I didn't know why. Or I may have worked out why, but I didn't know how. There's something, yeah, very satisfying about that. Whereas, yeah, if the rugs pull completely and you're just like, oh, well, I never could have got that. And you just throw the book back on the shelf and never think about it again. So that's what I was always trying to do is left readers at the end in a really satisfied, you know, almost smug kind of way going, oh yeah, I see it. That was my, that was my aim. But it's so funny to see how different people interpret you know, it's kind of been out there. I've been getting early reviews from people, from readers um, on like advanced reading sites. Uh, and it's just so fun to see what different people take away from it. There's some people that are like, oh, well, I did like the character. I thought the characters, I didn't like the characters at all. And other people are like, I love the characters. And people are like, oh, I don't like the setting. And other people, like there's so many opposites. I know. That I just can't, I can't quite work it out. The thing um, is, is, I feel like when I go to review websites and see that, I'm like, okay, now that's an interesting book. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully, hopefully that means uh, this one definitely is. All righty. Well, Jamie, it has been an absolute pleasure having you here on Death of the Reader. And thank you for all of the time that you've given us and for sending us an advanced copy of this book. I've had a fantastic time with it. And I hope that the audience can take my genuine endorsement in sitting down for this long with a debut author who I found on Twitter. <laughs> because <laughs> this is like, this has been a blast. Oh, fantastic. All righty. This is your Murder Mystery World Tour here on 2SER. Thank you for joining us for the extended chat on the podcast. We'll be back with more. Make sure you're subscribed. And of course, if you did want to financially support the station that we are a part of, 2SER 107.3, there are links on the podcast page, or you can head to 2SER.com, this radiothon, and there are plentiful prizes that you can be in the running to win in return for your support of the station, or simply make a tax-deductible donation. The details are all up there on the website. Thank you once again to Jamie West for the advanced copy of the book and his time. This is your Murder Mystery World Tour. I'm out of here.